much more important than the color of my skin or my language or my religion or my culture. I'm a human being, so is she and so is he, and we cry and we laugh and we all feel pain, we bleed and our blood is the same. If you look, you can find nature all over the place. Just look at it for what it is and don't worry about what it's called or anything like that. Just marvel in its beauty, incredible. Join explorers and travelers on their journeys and discover distant places and fascinating cultures. From the highest peaks and densest jungles into the heart of adventure. This is Unfolding Maps with Eric Lawrence. What does real success really mean? How can we effectively fight against climate change and for nature? And what to make of the protests of the last generation? Dr. Jane Goodall talks about all of this and more in this episode of Unfolding Maps. She also reflects on her earliest animal-related childhood memories, explains what growing up during World War II taught her for life, and she explains some of the biggest challenges we humans face right now and where possible solutions lie. So, as you can see, it is a wide-ranging conversation with one of the world's foremost behavioral scientists and environmental activists. And it is a continuation of her first appearance on Unfolding Maps in episode 24, in which she talked about her research in Tanzania and the beginnings of her involvement as an activist. She explained why she's not afraid to work with even perceived opponents, and she has revealed why she has never lost hope despite the many crises we face around the world. Jane Goodall is the founder of the Jane Goodall Institute, an internationally recognized animal and conservation organization. She's also a United Nations Messenger of Peace and an honorary member of the World Future Council. In 1991, she founded the non-governmental organization Roots and Shoots to bring together youth from preschool to college age to address environmental, conservation and humanitarian issues. Time magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And so, of course, I'm very honored that she has decided and agreed to come back to Unfolding Maps for a second conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Hi, Jane. Uh, welcome back to our show. I am really thrilled to have you on once again. Hi. It's lovely to see you again and be on your show. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, the last time we spoke <laughs> was uh, almost exactly two years ago in uh, spring 2021. How have you been since then? Busy than I've ever, more busy than I've been at any other time in my life. And, you know, while I was kind of grounded all throughout the pandemic, mm -hmm. I was here. And at first I was frustrated and angry. And then, well, that's useless. So we created Virtual Jane. And I was sometimes in four countries, Zooming interviews or giving lectures in one day. Mm -hmm. And it, it, there was no break. I didn't have one day off, not even Christmas oh my God. for two years. I'm sorry to hear that. So, I hope I'm not adding to that stress right now. <laughs> you're, you're the second one I've had today and then I've only got one to go. Okay, okay. We Hopefully this one won't uh, be the most exhausting one out of the three. Uh, let's have a good yeah, time. I'm sure it would. No. <laughs> Um, I would like to start our conversation by uh, taking a step back with you, a big step to Great Britain, which <laughs> now that I think about it, admittedly, is not a big step for you, but for me it is. Um, 
more specifically to a farm in the countryside uh, in a time when you were four or five years old, I believe. Four. And it, four. Yeah. Yeah. And it was in this time and place, uh, I believe, that you had your very first memorable experience with regard to animal observation. And it had something to do with chicken. <laughs> What happened on this farm all these years ago? <laughs> well, it was a beautiful two-week holiday for me on a farm because we lived in London, not so many animals there. And I was given the job of collecting the hen's eggs. Mm -hmm. Well, they were strutting around in the farmyard, you know, the proper farm, the old-fashioned farm. But they went into these little hen houses to lay their eggs. So apparently I began asking everybody, where does the egg come out of the hen? Because I couldn't see a big enough hole. Uh -huh. And they wouldn't tell me or didn't. And then I saw this hen and she went into one of the hen houses and I thought, Ah, she came to lay an egg. I crawled after her. Big mistake. She flew out in fear. <laughs> so I went into another hen house and waited four hours. And I saw a hen come in and lay an egg. So rushing towards the house, my poor mother, she'd even called the police. Oh, well, she was worried. Because I disappeared. Yeah, you were gone for quite a while. Yeah, nobody knew where I was. And it was getting late. That you see, she was so amazing. She sat down to listen. She did not say, how dare you go off without telling us, which would have killed my excitement. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's the making of a little scientist, curiosity, asking questions, making a mistake, not giving up, and learning about patience. It was all there, and a different mother might have crushed it. I mean, your mom, uh, she sounds like she was amazing because you took, <laughs> you took testing parental patients uh, to quite a new level a, a couple of times. I believe she also on one occasion found earthworms in your bed. Yes. I was only one or one and a half. I don't remember it at all. But <laughs> instead of saying, Oh, yeah, throw those dirty things, she said, let's take them back to the garden or they might die. And so <laughs> we did. <laughs> Can you at all guess where this kind of curiosity and interest in animals came from that early on in your life? I was born that way. It didn't come from anywhere. Hmm. It just came with me into the world. <laughs> and uh, did you already back then feel that you had not only an appreciation for animals, but also a special connection with them? Well, I pretended to all my friends when I was six, seven, eight, you know, that I could understand what the animals were saying. Uh -huh. I'd read Dr. Doolittle, and I wanted a parrot to teach me animal languages. But anyway, I think I always had a, a really good relationship with animals. And, you know, from the beginning, I would sit patiently. Every day I'd go and sit not too close while a pair of birds made a nest and laid the eggs and then watched the babies hatch. And so that was every day I could, I was there. And these these observations and also reading, as you said, Dr. Doolittle and uh, Tarzan, you told me about that last time. What did these observations, these animal encounters and this reading, what did that do to you in terms of, of I don't know, of your dreams, of your early child or youth aspirations? What did you dream of as a child? Well, it was really came to a head when I saved up the few pennies of pocket money and got a little secondhand book. Uh, only about this big, mm -hmm. tiny print, Tarzan of the Apes. And I fell passionately in love with this glorious lord of the jungle. And 
you know, was very jealous because he married the wrong Jane. But yeah, yes, uh, yes. that was when my dream began. I'm going to grow up, go to Africa, live with wild animals and write books about them. Everybody laughed at me. I wanted to ask, what, what did your family, your friends, what did they think about those dreams? They thought it was ridiculous. They laughed at me. How would I mm. do that? Africa was far away. We didn't know much about it. It was dark and dangerous. And we had very little money. The war was raging at that time. Mm -hmm. And I was just a girl. Girls didn't do that sort of thing. Not my mother. She said, if you really want to do this, you're going to have to work really hard, take advantage of every opportunity. And if you don't give up, hopefully you find a way. That is incredible advice to a young girl with these kind of big ideas. Um, it seems like yeah. your mother really was a little bit, uh, quite a bit ahead of her time in her thinking. She was, yeah, she was, definitely. Hmm. But then her mother had been as well. And my aunt was one of the first women to, to get qualified at Guy's Hospital to, to be a physiotherapist. So the whole family were, you know, doers. Yeah. To us and encourage us and sounds like that's very inspirational to me like if i just think about if i would be a parent that would be something i would really aspire to to be encouraging in that healthy kind of way yeah a lot of parents have said i followed your advice jane i tried to be as much like your mother as i could yeah. because i found that certainly in japan and china too there's a big push for children to go into business make money 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 You know, and I, they come to me crying sometimes. I don't want to do that. And what shall I do, they say. And I, well, I'm not going to put them up against their teacher or their parents. So I say, well, why don't you do that? Really make a success. You don't have to do it all your life. And even while you're making money, you can still find time to help the environment and animals. Yeah, and you have been very essential in helping to set up structures and ideas with your Roots and Shoots programs that make it easier for people who want to participate in engaging, helping the environment and animal and so on. Um, we'll talk yeah. about that in a bit. You mentioned that, uh, of course, during all this time, during your childhood, the war was raging, the Second World War. And uh, that reminds me of another interview uh, with you that I've heard in preparing for this. And in that conversation, you said that Even though, of course, it was shocking in many ways to grow up during that time, you are also actually in some sense uh, glad that you grew up during that time. Uh, why is that? Yeah, Because, you know, for a long time, Britain was standing alone against the might of Nazi Germany. And, and then, of course, we entered the war and everything was rationed. Everything, you know, was all to go out to the troops and making ammunition and guns and things like that. Hmm. So food was rationed, and we had very minimal rations. So you were grateful for every mouthful of food that you had. There was none of this waste. And I learned about, you know, human suffering, and particularly when the result of the Holocaust came into the newspapers. And I also learned about hope, hmm. because at the beginning of the war, with England not prepared, it was hopeless. But we had Churchill, and Churchill roused the spirit of determination not to give in in the British people. Otherwise, we would have lost, and Hitler would have overrun the whole of Europe. I don't know what would have happened, but anyway. And, you know, Zelensky's doing the same in Ukraine mm. now. Yes. Uh, hope, uh, that also reminds me of our last conversation. We talked about of hope being one of the guiding principles 
of your life and work. And evidently, you found inspiration to be hopeful, even in times of great despair, already uh, very early on in your, in your childhood, the way you describe it right now. Yes, I learned that even in the darkest time, there's a, a little bright star and you just have to hang on and with all your being, believe that if you do your best and everybody else does their best, you actually work your way through. Have you ever been close to uh, losing hope in your life? I think the worst time of all was at Gombe when four of my students were kidnapped mm. and um, we had to virtually close down the research station. And as a result of that, the people who were funding the Gombe research withdrew, mm -hmm. so there was no money. But, you know, I was absolutely determined we cannot stop this research now. And so I sort of went round America, begging bowl in hand, And I knew that unless I found the right person to run the institute, Gombe would collapse. And so I think I felt really, really hopeless one evening. I was on my own. And the man I was counting on called and said, I can't do it, Jane. Hmm. And I cried. And then I picked up the receiver and I said, you promised and at least give it a try because I'm counting on you. And he agreed. And we did get the money and we did keep Gombe going. So, yeah. Gombe, of course, is the national park in Tanzania that you did all the way back then, starting in the 60s, your groundbreaking research uh, on the chimpanzees and continue to be involved in all the way to today. I also would like to get into that a little bit later. Yep. You also mentioned uh, Zelensky and um, the war in Ukraine that is unfortunately raging right now in Europe. That brings me to the question that um, so much of your work is, of course, focused on raising awareness, on moving the needle bit by bit, step by step, conversation by conversation, um, moving the needle towards ensuring more healthy ecosystems. And for a couple of years, it uh, felt like the needle had been moving. For example, if we think of all the attention the Fridays for Future movement was able to generate. Yeah, and then Russia started its war in Ukraine, which of course is first and foremost, a huge tragedy in itself, and especially for the Ukrainian people. But it also takes away quite a bit of attention mm. from the climate crisis, um, from the need to do more, yep. because I feel instead uh, societies and political leaders and so on are now focusing quite a bit more on questions of, I don't know, security, military conflicts and so on. Isn't it deeply depressing trying to move the needle towards a sustainable future, preventing mass extinction of species and so on, and then being thrown back years because of a kind of conflict that we hoped we'd never have to deal with again in Europe? How do you deal with that for well, yourself? How do you think about that? Yeah, I, I can understand that many people are really concerned because the economy is suffering. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I was just learning about the rise in oil and heating and electricity in Germany mm -hmm. because of being barred from taking oil from the Russian pipeline. Yes. So I can understand it. But at the same time, the mood and the atmosphere in COP15, I think it was, uh, that just happened in Montreal. Big climate conference. That was conference. more successful. Yeah, more successful than anybody dared to hope. Hmm. And so in spite of the economic crisis, there still is an understanding which has reached the top levels, certainly the general public, that we really need. This is a, 
a long-term crisis. Ukraine hopefully will be solved, but the climate crisis is growing all the time, along with the loss of biodiversity. So it's desperately important that we don't allow it to be sidelined by the war, especially because the war, the machinery of war is adding to the uh, mm -hmm. greenhouse gases all the time. So it's even more urgent. That's a big uh, or an important topic to me as well, the, the urgency of it all, because last time we talked about your advice to, in general, not to be paralyzed by the scope of these global challenges, um, but to, for example, instead to act locally, like every one of us can have an impact every day, you said, based on how we choose to live, which of course sounds and is great and empowering. But a question that uh, came to my mind after we had that conversation, uh, thinking back to it now, is will that lead to the needed changes fast enough? What I mean is, of course, there is change. Change is happening. People are changing their consumer behavior, for example. Corporations are changing. Politics are slowly changing. But I feel it's often incremental. And uh, given the urgency, I feel like maybe it's happening well, actually by far too slowly. How do you wrestle with that, that Change is happening, giving us reason for hope, yes, but it also looks like the window of opportunity is quite rapidly closing. Yeah, I know. And this is why I'm spending every waking moment doing mm. what I can to wake people up, to help people. But, you yes. know, one of the problems is... I know it's people... not on you, by the way. You, you are doing plenty, and I and so many people no, around know. the world appreciate no, it. But, you know, a lot of people don't take action because they feel helpless, mm. because they haven't understood that you can't solve the world's problems. And if you spend too much time thinking globally, you, you become apathetic because what can I do? But if you take something you care about, whether it's litter or planting trees or raising money for refugees or volunteering in an animal shelter, whatever it is, and persuade people to take action with you, and you see that you're making a difference here, and then you realize that people around the world, there are groups just like yours hmm. working to make a difference. And it makes you feel good, and then you want to do more. I want to feel better. So, you know, thinking like that does give people hope. And the more hope they have, the more action they will take. And all we can do is say, we must do more and we must do faster. And stories are important. The media can give stories. Yeah. But please, not just the doom and gloom, but stories of how you overcome the doom and gloom. If they can do it, I can do it. I would like to get into one of such stories of how obstacles can be overcome, in particular how you were quite essential in overcoming one of them. I would like to talk about some of the main challenges we have to deal with today and in the future. And um, I have heard you say somewhere that in some sense we talked about wars, like in Ukraine or back then in the Second World War. You said somewhere that in some sense all of us are in a war today as well, which is a war against nature. And that, of course, is a war we cannot win. Nobody can win it. It's just something that needs to be stopped. And, of course, the question how to do that is a big question. Um, but maybe we start with breaking it down a bit and by me asking you very particularly, what are, in your opinion, the three biggest challenges that we as humans are facing today? And then maybe we can go into a little more detail in each of them and give you the chance to, to talk about them more. Okay, well, yeah, there are three main ones, I think, maybe four, but 
First of all, it's the unsustainable lifestyle, the people who have way, way more than they need. Mm. And this is causing a really unsustainable, you know, degradation of the natural world. Mother Nature can't repair quickly enough what we're taking and taking Mm. and taking. So that's one. Number two is alleviate poverty, because when you're really poor, well, around Gombe, it used to be all forest. And when I flew over in the late 1980s, I saw Gombe was a little patch of forest, and all around were bare hills, more people than the land could support, too poor to buy food elsewhere. And that's when it hit me. If we don't help these people to find ways of living without destroying their environment, because they were cutting down the trees, uh, not just for firewood, but to make money from charcoal Hmm. or timber, or to clear land, grow more food for their families. Which is understandable, right? In their living conditions for them to do that. Yes. So, you know, alleviating poverty. And in urban areas, poor people will buy the cheapest. They can't afford to ask as we can, did it harm the environment? Was it cruel to animals? Is it cheap because of unfair wages? They just have to buy the cheapest. And so alleviating poverty comes very high on my list. Mm. And we try and do this in six African countries. And then, well, somehow somebody has to find a way of dealing with corruption because that underlies so many of the things that are going wrong in the world. And then we can't ignore the fact that there's there's eight billion of us on the planet now, mm. a huge growth, and it's predicted there'll be more like 10 billion in um, 2050. So if it carries on like that and with business as usual, what's going to happen? I don't have an answer, but it's not something we can push under the carpet. Yeah, just just between the time that uh, you started your research in the Gombe National Park in Tanzania, that was when you were 26 years old. I believe at that time we had about four or five billion people on Earth, and now it's eight billion. And as you said, the numbers uh, continue to grow. So yeah. it's hard to imagine that if we don't change things significantly, that the Earth can bear so many people. Yes, um, well, it's the way we do things, you know. Yeah. And so one of the things we introduced in our program to alleviate poverty is scholarships to keep girls in school Mm -hmm. because it's found that all over the world, as women's education improves, family size tends to drop. Yeah. I would like to talk about that a little bit more, this point of alleviating poverty. And you talked about the Gombe National Park in Tanzania that is so important to your professional biography, but also to you personally, close to your heart. Um, And you just mentioned, I just want to briefly uh, reiterate it, that on that flight that you took in the 90s, you saw with shock such a big change in the size of the forests down there compared to what you remembered from the 60s when you started your research. And you realized, as you just said, that the main reason for these changes, for the loss of forests, was the poverty of people and the realization that if we don't help these people to deal with their poverty and stop them from cutting down the rainforest, then we can't save the forest and we can't save the chimpanzees or anything else. You realized all of that, thinking about it. Probably not everything <laughs> on that uh, flight, but of course, it shocked you. No. <laughs> you, you, you went deeper on it. Um, and of course, uh, 
you didn't leave it at being shocked, but you decided that you would uh, try to push back against these developments. Um, that is the actual uh, story that I wanted to get to because I think it's a really inspiring story. Um, what did you do? What did you try to turn that development around to change the tide? Well, I was very fortunate. In, in a, when you say development, people will think of housing developments. It, it wasn't. It was just people in their little villages. Mm -hmm. Back then, they were mostly mud huts, you know, mm -hmm. but it was cutting down the forest. Yeah. That was the problem. So I luckily found um, a wonderful, very wise and knowledgeable person to partner with me. I couldn't have done it all on my own. And we chose a small group of local Tanzanians, and they went into the villages around Gombe and sat down and listened to the people. What can we do that will make your lives better? They wanted better education for their children. They wanted better health facilities. And they wanted a way of producing more food, which meant returning fertility to the overused farmland. And mm. George Strunden, who was the partner I found, he had long years of experience in Africa with agriculture. And from Muhammad Yunus, He took me to Bangladesh, and I learned about microfinance programs. So that mm -hmm. was introduced. But it was step by step by step. And now, A, the people have understood that protecting the environment isn't just for wildlife. No, it's for, for their own future. And they've become our partners in conservation. And as a result of that, the trees have come back. And we have our youth program in all the schools in 104 villages throughout Chimp Range, learning about the environment, learning about animals, learning that animals like us have personalities, minds and feelings, and feel pain and fear. So that program is now in six other African countries. So today, about 30 years after that flight, that shocked you so much, um, How is the National Park doing? You said trees came back. Um, so it, it seems like the chimpanzees are still living there. Research is still going on. And not only did uh, people stop cutting down trees, but actually the, the rainforest that had been partially destroyed actually showed quite a bit of resilience and came back. Yes, it's um, Miombo forest. It's not, except in the valley, it's not real rainforest, mm -hmm. but okay. in between its hills. Yeah. And so a lot of the regeneration has come from seeds that were left in the ground after mm -hmm. the people realized we cannot, we should not farm on these steep slopes because there's terrible erosion. And in fact, there was a mudslide which killed people. And that really woke them up. And uh, they were saying the, the gods are angry with us for cutting down the trees. So what, what I take away from what you just said, and of course you can add to which kind of lessons we can uh, take away from this for regions, other regions facing similar crises, is that uh, you didn't back then decide to, uh, I don't know, okay, I need to go to Tanzania, I need to give some big speeches and presentations and explain to these people what they're doing wrong. But instead you reached out to uh, locals and trained them and listened to them and then sent them out to talk to these people and uh, really create a shared understanding of what could and should and needs to be done. Yep. And we didn't even need to train the people. Uh -huh. It was very small, seven mm -hmm. local people. They'd all worked yeah. in different NGOs. And so, you know, they were pretty good when, when they joined us. 
and three of them are still with us all these years later. One of them runs the whole show. So it's really about um, the way you approached it, uh, about respect, right, in the end. Yeah, respect. respect for, for the local situation that yep. may be challenging for us to understand if we just see the results and are shocked how can they do this. Yeah, mm. it's um, community-led conservation is gaining ground in other NGOs, and we did take the lead in it, which is a wonderful feeling. Mm -hmm. And I don't take credit. The only credit I take is finding George. <laughs> But, <laughs> finding you know, we've George. done it together. Yeah. And, of course, I, as I'm going around the world, I'm always having to try and raise funding. But it's worked. Another big challenge that you mentioned is uh, our unsustainable lifestyle, which we also talked a little bit about last time. Uh, we talked about our focus on materialism and the problems that that causes. And of course, at the core of this is our culture of consumption and of growth and of how we think about what success means for us personally and also as a society. How can we manage to arrive at a new understanding of success and prosperity? Yeah, well, this is the problem, isn't it? At the moment, when you talk about somebody who's successful, they're definitely somebody who's making money or they've made a huge reputation for themselves, or they've gained power. And as long as we think in those terms only, then nothing's ever going to work. But how do you change that mindset? My definition of success would be somebody who's made or got enough money to get the necessities of life, to look after his or her family, to have time to spend in nature, They have time to be with family. And that, actually, the King of Bhutan's happiness index is based on that kind of thinking. And some of these people who get to the top, they're not really happy. They're so stressed. Mm -hmm. Life is so stressful. You've always got to be making money. And we've got in this really difficult situation where if we all stop buying, then Hundreds of companies will go broke because they count on selling in order to pay their staff and keep going and please their shareholders. You know, so I, I can't solve this problem, but that's why we all have to get together and bring together the minds, the economists and so on that really can start to make a difference. And to, to break this uh, vicious cycle, as you said, of wanting to consume but also to keep the system working and keep people employed in the end to to continue to consume as well when do you personally feel successful uh well i feel successful in that roots and shoots is now in 67 countries yeah i feel successful when i you know i go to a big meeting of ceos And at the end, they give a standing ovation and join me saying, together we can save the planet, together we will, together we must. Mm -hmm. That feels like I got through to them. So it's, in your case, it's really about making a difference. And But what you also said beforehand, is, which I found a nice touch, is that for you, a successful person, of course, has enough money, ideally, to take care of his or her personal needs. Um, doesn't need to worry about buying food or having accommodation, living in a good place, uh, but then also finding time to connect with loved ones, making a change in the world maybe, ideally, and also finding time to be, for example, out in nature, which um, uh, my observation is that today many people in this time of globalization, digitalization, mega cities, uh, struggle with. For them, issues of nature and climate and biodiversity, all of that is quite abstract and they feel 
rather detached from the natural world. How do you think about such developments, especially when thinking back to how you grew up surrounded by nature and animals? Well, with our Roots and Shoots program, we do our best yeah. to get children to do things out in nature. And if they go on a nature walk, no, don't take your cell phones uh, with you. I'll have one. Your parents can contact me, but no, you're not going to text your friends. And I think once children, especially young children, when they really get in nature and they're allowed to kind of look around and, and see what's there, they get absolutely fascinated. And then when it comes to children living in the inner city, we have to take nature into them. We have to try and even a small patch uh, to grow things so that they see things growing or watch a butterfly hatch out of its caterpillar stage. And for adults, well, now it's been proved that time in nature is beneficial to our mental and physical well-being. And in Japan and Canada, doctors can prescribe time in nature. Hmm. I didn't know <laughs> As a that. prescription, yeah. yes. Those two countries huh. started in Japan. They call it forest bathing. Yes, that uh, I have know, heard of, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody can go out in the forest, obviously. So for me, when I'm on a tour, usually it's city, city, city. But, you know, if there's a tree growing a poor little tree outside my hotel window, I move all the furniture so that where I'm sitting I can see the tree <laughs> and hope maybe a little sparrow will appear yeah. or a pigeon or something. So you, if you look, you can find nature all over the place. That is, I mean, that is definitely true. We, we've had whole episodes talking to guests who specialize in finding nature and even wildlife in the city. If you start looking yeah. and if you understand a little bit about how to look and especially when to look, there's so much we can find in the cities as well. Yep. Yeah. And you know, I, I'm walking along the other day, I was walking with somebody in, I think it was New York. Where I am right now as we speak, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was just a gray pavement. There was no tree, weren't even any trees. And I looked, because I'm always looking, and there was a little actual flower coming up between two paving stones. How it got there, I don't know, but it did. Mm -hmm. How does that uh, make you feel to spot something like that? Something small and unexpected like that? Well, I love it. And, you know, I've always been doing that all my life. So that was very unexpected. But I'm always seeing little things like that. Like there's one airport in America where sparrows get in. Uh -huh. They seem to live in, in the airport. I don't know. And there's a people going back and forth. And there were two sparrows, male and a female. And she was begging, you know, they, they pretend like babies and they gape their beaks and flap their wings like this. <laughs> and he'd seen a crumb on the ground and he wanted to feed her. But every time he was just about to pick it up, somebody walked by and it took him five goes. And finally, he got his crumb into her mouth. But nobody else stopped to look. Yeah. And it was such a drama, you know. <laughs> it just lifted my spirits. He, he won. 
<laughs> yeah, while, while you are telling the story, uh, I see your broad smile. So I'm sure you have been very happy when you finally achieved this goal. <laughs> I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, these stories about um, focusing on the small things and uh, trying to observe them also uh, remind me of a special moment that you talked about somewhere. Uh, one where you realized that every being really big or small doesn't matter has a soul. And it was many years ago when I believe a colorful fly landed somewhere on you, on your hand or something. Do you remember that? I mean, a fly, how much smaller can it get? Yeah. How much uh, seemingly uh, more insignificant can it get? Yeah. Well, it, it was, I was just on my own in the forest and this fly landed. I think it was my, I think it was on my arm or something. I've never seen one like it before or since. It, it was just glowing colors. It's the size of a house fly. And I got to thinking, well, here is this beautiful little being, and I've labeled it a fly. Mm -hmm. And that immediately, for many people, oh, it's just a fly. Exactly. So words sometimes can take away from the wonder of nature. Just look at it for what it is, and don't worry about what it's called or anything like that. Just marvel in its beauty, in this little tiny thing, incredible. And also, you know, I, I get this feeling out in the forest that everything's interconnected. And I feel a connection with a great spiritual power. don't know what to call it. Mm -hmm. And that a little spark of that spiritual power is in all these living things. And because we have to name everything, that spark in us, we call a soul. So if I've got a soul, that little fly had a soul too. Yeah, and uh, honestly, I believe <laughs> making these observations and then telling these kinds of uh, powerful and emotional stories about them, and this is part of why, uh, in particular, you are so powerful and effective in reaching hearts and minds of, of people, of listeners, of readers, and so on, um, storytelling. But of course, um, if I think about that, also about what we're doing right now, right here, is that um, one of the problems probably uh, when it comes to tackling some of the big challenges of our time is that we sometimes tend to preach to the choir a little bit. Um, what I mean is that many of us uh, live, as it is often called, in uh, information bubbles in which uh, we mainly consume opinions that we already share anyway and that uh, confirm our pre-existing views. Uh, probably uh, most of our listeners right now, in fact, generally agree that climate change is real, uh, that we need to change and act and all of that. How do we uh, manage to overcome these information bubbles and to pierce them and to maybe reach those people that we haven't reached yet, that are not yet part of the effort of thinking about and maybe even initiating change? Well, I actively seek out groups like that. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I left my comfort zone and went to some of these big conferences, mm -hmm. meeting business leaders and politicians. I wasn't particularly happy, but, but I did it. Mm -hmm. And now I very often give talks to, uh, to CEOs of big companies. I've been twice to Davos. And I try and get into the rural communities, try and get into the inner cities, And through roots and shoots, you see, because we have roots and shoots for everyone. Mm -hmm. It's for young and old. We've got more and more adults, actually, but it's basically for youth. And we try and link them together so that those from different walks of life can get together. 
And finally, different countries can get together. We try and get different religions together. Mm -hmm. Not always easy. Yeah. But then, then young people get this feeling, well, much more important than the color of my skin or my language or my, or my religion or my culture. I'm a human being. And so is she and so is he. And we cry and we laugh and we all feel pain. We bleed and our blood is the same. So, um, what I take away from that is that if you head out there and even talk, I don't know, to CEOs of oil companies and many others, then probably like if I, not that I do, but if I had like an, I don't know, an uncle who maybe is annoyed by all these climate change activists and all these annoying news about that. And I would feel like I really don't want to talk about that. I don't want to like people in America here, if they have like a really right wing uncle, a big Trump fan, and they are just like giving up on him. Your advice would be, in my understanding, don't give up. Don't give up. Try to talk to them anyway. Yeah, try and talk to them and reach them through storytelling. It's no good arguing with them. They're not going to listen. And that's the mistake people make. No, you've got to find a story, a story that reaches the heart. And too often it's head against head, head against head. But I, th only th I think only when head and heart work in harmony can we attain our true human potential. So we've got to reach their heart. But that's a big challenge, right? I, I think that's a great advice. I will also take it to heart myself because I feel if an issue is really important to you and you think, you, th you yourself think things are so clear, so obvious, and then somebody ignores not only these opinions, but also the facts underlying them, it's sometimes hard for people to, <laughs> to stay calm and to refrain from trying to argue, as you just said. But you're, you're probably right. Arguing uh, very rarely leads to changed hearts and minds. Yep. And people mm. get heated. And if you watch two people like that, you see that at a certain point, They stop really listening because yeah. they're thinking of an argument to throw back at the person who just challenged them. It's about winning the argument. Yes. So in the end, neither of them are listening to each other. <laughs> That's true. Um, okay. So when we talk about how to make these points, not arguing, but uh, still trying to get attention from maybe from people who haven't listened uh, as much so far. Um, how do you think about uh, young climate activists uh, trying to do that by, for example, uh, gluing themselves onto highways as a form of protest or throwing pea soup or mashed potatoes at famous works of art? Um, as you probably know, actions and protests like that, for example, by a group uh, called The Last Generation, have uh, created, yeah. um, for example, in Germany, in my uh, home country, quite a few headlines and uh, uproar and I would say also quite a bit of opposition. Um, so how do you feel about that? Well, I oppose it very strongly. It is not the way to go. And by doing things like that, you upset people who may well have been feeling just like you. Hmm. And by making them angry, you're almost saying, well, I don't know, it just is the wrong way to go. I know in, in the UK where people have been protesting, blocking the highways. You know, they're, they're preventing decent, ordinary citizens who may very well be part of an NGO climate people from getting home, picking up their children, having an appointment with the doctor. They, they can't get through because of the, because of the blockade. And fine, if you want to protest, go and sit outside parliament or something like that. But don't block the road 
for ordinary people. And why would you destroy a work of art? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. Okay. <sighs> well, we have talked in this conversation about quite a few big, heavy, and serious topics uh, intermixed, I hope, with some beautiful anecdotes of how you try to connect with nature. Um, but uh, maybe ending on a lighter note, um, you mentioned that, uh, for example, today you, you are doing three interviews. You have been so busy since COVID started, more busy than ever before. After a long day of work, what do you do to relax your mind? Well, after a long day of work, mm -hmm. um, when it gets to evening, like seven o'clock, something like that, it's time for some supper. When I'm at home, as I am now, you know, with my sister, my son is here. I go downstairs, have a nice whiskey, of mm -hmm. course, a little whiskey okay. is a good thing. <laughs> it also keeps your voice going. Okay. I mean, medicinally. Yeah. Um, maybe watch some silly thing on television, maybe read a book. What's the last silly th thing you watched on television? I think it was a, a Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot. No, it was, no, what I like best to do is the, uh, is the animal ones. That's right. The last thing I saw was polar bears and Arctic fauna and flora. Okay. That's not too stupid. And the problems. <laughs> yeah. Not problems they're facing because the ice is melting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for me, for me, it's mainly running and reading. Um, right now, I'm I'm reading this one. I don't know if you can see it. Um, I picked yes. it up a few uh, weeks ago in uh, Costa Rica in a hostel. It's uh, written by I think a f I don't know if she's a friend of yours, but at least I know it's a person that you respect very much. Uh, Margaret yep. Atwood, the author of yes. The Handmaid's Tale. This one is called uh, The Heart Goes Last. Uh, very enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, I had her on my podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I've yeah. listened to that conversation. Yeah. Uh, it's also on YouTube if uh, people want to check it out. Jane, thank you so much for that second round. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, it was lovely talking to you and good luck. And remember the little nip of whiskey? <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> I mean, now, uh, this is, by the way, this is great for me because um, when I will have my little nip of whiskey, probably tonight, and my husband Cedric uh, criticizes me for it, frowns on me, scolds me, I will have a great reason to do it. I will just say, Jane Goodall told me to do it. And say that Jane is raising a glass at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Bye-bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 